We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out BlueWirePods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. Hey there, welcome to Binge the Bucks, a special narrative podcast series focusing on the Milwaukee Bucks 2019 playoff run part of the Eurostep podcast. I'm Ty Windish, and I'm here with Rohan Kadi and our second Binge the Bucks special guest to break down Game 1 in the second series in the Bucks run in 2019, a 112-90 loss to the Boston Celtics. This podcast is brought to you by BetOnline.ag, and the Eurostep is proudly a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. This game was rough. It's kind of hard to imagine now, and even looking back, but at the final buzzer of this game, it really felt like the Bucks were in a hopeless situation, ready to get sent home after a dominant regular season. To really capture the moment, we're sitting down with someone else who recorded a podcast directly after this game aired live. With you, actually, Rohan, our good friend, host of the Win and Six podcast, and site expert at Behind the Buck Pass, Adam McGee. Adam, welcome to the Eurostep. It's great to be here. I believe this is my first time, although we weren't entirely sure. I think that is correct, even though I misremembered one. But I think I was just, I don't know where I, I thought of that from. So that's been a long time. So I have a yeah. couple of questions here. Sure. Are we, are we all still friends? Are we? Because invited me on for this, this episode. <laughs> well, that's, um, you know, I thought I missed sports. And then I started to do preparation <laughs> and watch sports to do this. And I'm like, you know what? Sports can stay away. So I I'll let Rohan answer for his side. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell anyone if they're friends with Rohan or not. I'll leave that to Rohan. He has agency. But uh, we I hope are. Uh, I'll wait on your answer. That's usually I I think I've been the more friendly one out of the two of us, at least towards each other. But the reason I, I wanted you specifically for this game is I think you are 
one of the most realist uh, Bucks coverage people, and I remember the particularly somber win in sixth right after this game um, that I listened to that I, for a second I thought I was on just because I was so used to being on somber win in six episodes, I guess. Um, but I, I wanted that perspective, and I wanted to really nail home how real and tough this loss was, and I knew you'd, you'd do well with it. So that's my, that's my complimenting positive spin on making you watch this game again. That's fair. I you're you're right. I'm wrong because I think the realist part is right, and um, that just comes from having been doing this this podcast and just blogging about <laughs> the books for quite a long time. So I'm just over the kind of the highs and lows. It's just it is what it is. Um, but I I did something else that I don't particularly enjoy in preparation, and I did re-listen to that episode. That episode that Ron did join uh, myself and Jordan Tresky for. And it wasn't actually that somber. I, I was feeling was. very confident still. N- no, you didn't. So I didn't? Okay. No, we'll, we'll maybe get to that <laughs> later. I was going to say, some of us were more confident than others. Certainly the least confident was you, Rowan. Awesome. Um, <laughs> but there wasn't, we weren't in general panic. I think one of the things that we all agreed on was the Celtics, give them credit. They were really good. And they were probably about the best they could be. And I know, and I didn't know this going into my re-listen of my own podcast, but one of the few moments I enjoyed in doing that was hearing that I, in fact, said the books would win five games. So it it didn't really do anything for me. I think it was as bad as the books could be and as good as the Celtics could be. That was kind of my feeling at the time. It's certainly not the way you want to start a series. But I think that's ultimately how it played out. Like, you, you expect once in a series, you're going to get the other team's best shot on a night where you might not quite have it. And it just happened that the Bucks got that out of the way up front against the Celtics. Did I, did I say that the Bucks would win the series? Or was I just completely off the rails? You, you said yes after a pause of about 15 to 20 seconds. You really were. <laughs> you were rattled. You were shaking in your boots at the sight of these green jerseys. Yeah, well, I'm sure as we'll discuss uh, on this episode, I think I was sort of feeling like the the problems that were sort of presented with this Boston team against Milwaukee specifically mm-hmm. came to light. And that so, was sort of like made my confidence waver a little bit. One of the interesting things about rewatching this game, and we'll get into our quarter by quarter breakdown in a second. First, uh, should mention at some point, I'll just do it right now. Both teams down a guard. I forgot how long Malcolm Brogdon was out in this playoff run. He does not come back for quite a while. It'll be a few weeks by our recording schedule, at least more than a week from now. Um, And Marcus Smart is out for the Celtics for about, I think, the exact same amount of games, uh, at least in in terms of this series. I don't remember exactly when each of them got hurt during the regular season, but both teams down a, a pretty important guard, I think. I think people who don't watch a lot of Celtics might not think Marcus Smart is that important. I think especially this version of the team, based on... How shall we say wishy-washy their chemistry could be? I think he he provided a lot of very important things, but he he does miss this game as does Brogdon. Um, I remember at, at the time, and I think this more came to light during the Raptors series, probably because there was just more losing to talk about. But it, I kind of remember thinking about was it more the offense or more the defense? And I think this game and a lot of the Bucks struggles later in the postseason. I have my answer. But I'm curious, what do you two think? Would you, after rewatching this game, this loss, 
did the Bucks not play defense well enough, or did they not play offense well enough? I think I honestly can't pick one or the other because I think it was both were pretty bad. And I mean, we will get into this in more detail, but I think the overall conclusion to draw for this game, not to do it like five minutes in and just wrap up the podcast <laughs> or anything. Uh, this is this was a catastrophically bad game from Giannis on both ends of the floor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if your best player, the best player in the series is that off his game, yeah, it's, it's not going to be good. And uh, I think basically the tone wasn't set for the books on either side of the ball. Now, just by the makeup of their roster, if he's not playing well, I think maybe they have less room for error on the offensive end. But I I don't think either thing was quite good in this game. I certainly wouldn't... I wouldn't compare my feeling of how this game played out or what went wrong here with what comes later and what the Bucks' ultimate end to their season was. I, I don't think we saw the same issues present from one to the other. I don't think necessarily the, the Raptors were able to say, okay, we're in a tough spot here. Let's look at the Celtics game one blueprint and go and apply that. I think this is part of this is just on the books not playing all that well and part of it is also the Celtics just playing at a level where you know some of the things you got to tip your hat like both Kyrie Irving and Al Horford were awesome like mm-hmm. really really good and for me I'll be honest there was a slight sense of relief in looking at this game and what the best version of that Celtics can be and knowing that it all unraveled f- four games later, and that the Bucks won't have to worry about facing that group again, because you know they are they were good, they were really good. They had the potential to be great. They got in their own way with that. But I even think some of the say take Horford for example, who I'm sure we'll talk about quite a lot more. Like watching this game and it being less than a year ago, it makes me think about the season he's having now, and I'm like. Yeah, he's he's not just completely done. He's obviously regressed in a major way, but it it likely speaks to something about the team and the setting he's in now, as opposed to just how well that Celtic squad was set up in every way. Like in in theory, if Kyrie Irving wasn't Kyrie Irving, the teammate, they would have been a really kind of credible threat, and maybe the most credible threat to the books for the foreseeable future, regardless of you know, if Giannis signs a a Supermax extension. So that was striking to me was, you know, just how how good and how, I guess, difficult a matchup the Celtics could be for the Bucs when it did click. Now, obviously, they weren't allowed to click and they got in their own way from that point on. But this was a very impressive performance from the Celtics. Yeah, it was... It was you were seeing the experience of Boston, uh, even though they didn't really have the chemistry as you just mentioned, but they had the playoff experience. Like Giannis and Chris, the two main players of the Bucks, they hadn't been to the second round before. This was their first time advancing in the playoffs, and they had a little bit of time to digest that, especially after like a sort of cakewalk through the first round. And then you have this team who went to the who went to Game Seven of the Eastern Conference Finals the year before without Kyrie and Gordon Hayward, which sort of made this team seem like the like a sleeping juggernaut, even though they struggled during the regular season, like the playoffs were their time to shine. They swept the Pacers, but it was sort of like a tough sweep 
you know, like thinking back, I didn't really realize that they swept the Pacers because I thought at least Indiana got one game, but they didn't. So it was, it was sort of like, it was a tough series for them. So they were already ready for like big battles while the Bucks were just blowing out the Pistons in the first round. So you're sort of seeing that experience, that locked in this, like it didn't, it didn't last as we'll get into later, like in this um, podcast series through this uh, series against Boston. But it's just this first game, you kind of saw that this Celtics team was ready. Like, they were ready and they were capable of doing real damage unless until they got in their own way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, I don't think it, it I don't think this was like the bot. I don't think Boston had a game plan necessarily that, you know, showed Toronto how to beat the Bucks later, as, as we'll get to in this podcast series. But I do think. There were some things I noticed that that did end up translating, and mostly on the offensive end. I think there's adjustments made, and we'll we'll get into the quarter by quarter in just a second. But I do think that you know this is something Rohan and I have talked about a lot on the the, the Euro step. You know the Bucks are a lot better than last year, even without Malcolm Brogdon. Obviously, we haven't watched him play in the playoffs yet in this series, but I think they just play so much smarter and so much better than they did last year. I mean, there's a lot of moments watching this where you just go. Why would why does this keep happening? Why is this? Why do these drives into a million guys keep happening? It is just as bad, maybe even worse than I remember. But we'll get there. Let's let's dive into the first quarter, which Boston does win, twenty six to seventeen. The series starts off right, uh, very 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 early on. A beautiful tough Chris Middleton pull up three is I think the first score in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Al Horford, as you already mentioned, Adam, looking a lot younger. Then he has, you know, less than a year later, several months later, rough block on Giannis earlier. There are going to be more of those later. And the Celtics just end up going on a run in uh, this quarter. Some Like I know you both mentioned, kind of the peak of Boston. There's some ridiculous shot making. I mean, it's not even just Kyrie. Like Marcus Morris, even Gordon Hayward is hitting like crazy floaters that don't look like good shots, but they're all going in. And Milwaukee's offense falters horribly at one point. The Bucks are down 21 to 10 until George Hill, as he is wont to do, came through big time, at least make the quarter closer. But what were your guys' takeaways from this first quarter? What do you think happened to let Boston build up a lead to start game one that, of course, they would end up on top of the game? That was a weird sentence. <laughs> well, when you like that Middleton three, you mentioned he hit his first two threes, I believe. Uh, it was, yeah, he hit uh, like two of the uh, three first shots for the Bucks were Middleton threes and he made both of them and I was I just remember thinking oh boy it's happening again he's just gonna go off against the Celtics and it's gonna be beautiful because this team is actually organized that fell apart real quickly <laughs> uh, as like you said Boston was just getting on a run and what sort of stood out to me was Kyrie he was hitting some tough shots like, he was, he was working a lot down low and hitting, like, turnaround fades over Bledsoe, over George Hill, who are, like, elite defenders. And he was just, like, if, you, if you're making those shots, you, you just have to shake his hand. Like, you can't, you can't do anything to stop that. And if he's making all of those while Giannis is getting shut down by Boston's elite defense at the time, you, you just, you can't, you can't break that down. I think for me, the, the standout from the first quarter is one particular play. I want to say it's probably about two and a half, three minutes into the game. And the Celtics defense somewhat parts 
um, towards the perimeter and the books find an opening and Yana specifically finds an opening that says, okay, let's drive. And it's one of the first times in the game where where that kind of opportunity arises. And by the time he gets to around the free throw line, Horford is there. He's willing to come meet him. He's certainly not going to get to the rim uncontested. But Horford, like, essentially lays down and is just like, here, take the shot. Take the shot. Giannis is just, say, three or four feet to the right of the free throw line. Um, honestly, a pretty simple mid-range shot, even where his game was last year. And he has no interest. He refuses it. And it's one of these moments for, for a lot of reasons where I think, in hindsight, knowing what happens, you can see the whole game fall apart. Because, I mean, the biggest issue for me with the offense is Giannis didn't have it going and... There was a lot of standing around. There was a lot of other like teammates static, standing in the corner. I'm in the corner where it's supposed to be, but not moving. Very, very easy for the Celtics to defend. And that was one of those moments where I think if he just steps in and takes that shot, make or miss, it could actually make a difference early on. Where instead he takes takes a mid-range shot from over on the left wing, probably around halfway through the quarter. But at that point, it's almost like he's already got to last resort. He's been rejected once, um, as you alluded to, Ty, of many times uh, in the game by Horford. And at this point, he's like taking contested fadeaway mid-range jumpers, where it's like, this is all I can get. So, I mean, the game was far from over in the first quarter. But I think there was elements of the writing on the wall for just decisions that I do think now Giannis in particular would, you know, react differently. Notably, he did talk about his big takeaway after the playoffs, and particularly after watching what Kawhi did to the books was, you know, he needed a mid-range game. He needed some go-to shot he could turn to. I wouldn't be surprised if this was one of the games he watched back and identified that because... You know, you make some of those shots or you even just take them, like proactively take them, step into them and take them rather than being forced into them early on. And the whole dynamic of the game could have shifted for the books offensively. But instead, they kind of, with that, they gave away the initiative early on and their offense was being dictated to them by the Celtics rather than the other way around. Yeah, it was sort of... We've, we've talked about this a lot, uh, but it's just how much better this Bucks team is in every res- every respect this season compared to uh, last season where the series took place. If you're if you're playing this this exact game against that Boston team uh, this season, you would have Chris working to get a good shot like in the mid range to just get a bucket, and you would have a lot more off ball movement as you mentioned, Adam, and it's just you would have those other counters. But this team didn't really do that. They were just focused on getting to the rim and taking threes. And that's sort of what led to their downfall in this game because you couldn't you couldn't do that. Yeah, it felt like tunnel vision to me was what I kept thinking about. I mean, uh, the, the play you described, Adam, is a perfect encapsulation because even if, you know, I like that you went to, you know, what else Giannis could have done to score, but... You know, there were a lot of times and across this game, and I'll come to more that I have in my notes later, but they'll be like, Giannis is under the rim, and like Al Horford is primary defending, Marcus Morris is... Marcus Morris just constantly wandering away from whoever his assignment was in this game. Like, Marcus Morris ended up doubling Giannis a lot. I don't know how much of those were intentional, but that, that happened a lot. Sometimes there's even a third Celtic, so there's all these guys on the perimeter. 
And Giannis is just like, all right, how do I yam on five guys at once? And sometimes it does work because Giannis is Giannis where any mere mortal is going to go like 0 for 10 in those circumstances. Giannis is maybe making three, maybe four of them because he is that good. But you can't, you know, score a two on three or four out of 10 possessions in the playoffs and and win a lot of games. And, And this was, I think, a good example of that. Giannis ends with, I think, just two assists in this game. Yep. Uh, seven for 21 from the field only makes four shots within the arc three for five from deep which is funny watching this back because the way people talk about Giannis it seems like he hadn't hit a single three in his life until like the Lakers game this regular season but no he was he was hitting threes at least sometimes in some games for a while now people just kind of chose not That's to remember and didn't conversation know, or... <laughs> yeah well it's just it was striking because he's hitting big moment threes and it's like he really kind of like the the national like conversation is like Giannis finally can hit a three, and it's like well, he was taking them you know years ago as well. Just nobody really paid attention. I agree with that, but I do think again there's a crucial difference to that, which is he was taking those trees because like not just the Celtics wanted him to take them; they were forcing him to take. Them. Yeah, he had no other choice. Were, they were last resort trees, so there was no. There was no real impetus. There was no Giannis taking it upon himself. And you know what? I like my chances to make this tree. I'm going to take it. I mean, I think the tree of five probably flatters him somewhat. I think the 22 points flattered him. This is like, in terms of a big game where he played really poorly, uh, this is right up there. I mean, obviously, some moments late in the in this series against the Raptors, and I guess the stakes of that also stick out. But in, in terms of just being like off and you're right the tunnel vision is a big part of it too it went beyond them scoring but this is the game where i think more than anything else certainly more than in a game what comes later i think like the books froze this was the panic this was something i don't think any of us have mentioned yet but is worth pointing out like this is the team they went seven with the year before so this first game has a little bit more to it the teams know each other pretty well but there's real cause for the books to be just that bit extra motivated and for the Celtics and to be like, let's go and get this first game and make a point with it. And I don't know, the pressure of that really seemed to get to them. I don't know, both of you guys have done something I will never do, which is just rewatch all of the Piston series. <laughs> like it's It was fun. Do we really think upon reflection that that was bad for the books coming into this game? And both teams did have the about a week-long layoff too, right? Heading into mm-hmm. this this first quarter because they both swept yep, and then yep. had to wait for the NBA, which is ridiculous. You know, both teams have swept start the series. I I really don't know. I, I think there was a lack of rhythm all around, but I think the books, there was a real tangible sense of panic at some of those moments. I think there's only one quarter in the game where they free themselves up and they start to say, yeah, let's just... Let's just play our game rather than playing the occasion or playing the moment. Yeah, yeah like we no, can I we think. can get into that second quarter right now that you were alluding to because it was just that that was where they sort of they sort of realized, hey, we we won sixty games during the regular season. We're we're a really good team. Uh, Nikola Mirotic decided that he no he realized that the goal is to put the ball in the basket instead of having a clank off the rim. Uh, so he forgot that later on. But uh, he went three for three from deep in that quarter, and he sort of sparked a run that sort of like got Milwaukee back into this game. And it was it was nice to see because it was just like what a two point lead going into the halves because Milwaukee had such a great second quarter. But 
this is this is sort of where they realize like oh we we don't need to panic we just need to play our game yeah yeah the, the second quarter the bucks do win 33 to 26 that quarter to, to really make it a close game and to, going into halftime honestly i didn't remember this game being close at halftime i it like it was just i filed it away in my memory is like horrible awful game with a celtics role but no this was a very very contested game at halftime it really did feel like the bucks were in position to you know to take the home court back make up for a bad first quarter um some highlights for me from this quarter chris with that absolutely insane and one with about five minutes to go in the quarter just a beautiful grift on jalen brown and he somehow makes the shot uh love to see chris grifting because usually i don't know what the actual percentage is but it feels like about 50 to 60 percent of the time if he draws an obvious bs foul he somehow makes the shot too which is just sweet um, George Hill and Chris Middleton, only two of the only guys generating offense outside from Brooke Lopez and, yes, Nikola Mirotic uh, making some threes. Um, Chris makes a beautiful pull-up three to take the lead at one point in this quarter. Um, it really felt like the Bucks were in position to, to take over this game, like I said. Uh, and then some more, some more tough shots from Kyrie, which were happening a lot in this game. And Jalen Brown absolutely spins Eric Bledsoe out of his shoes at one point. Although this was overall a pretty good Bledsoe game, which I also didn't remember. Or no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. No, Never it was mind. Not. I'm thinking of, it, thinking it, of game the two. The first quarter is... was was a little okay. The first quarter, he looked yeah. like he was, you know, present, not completely, you know, out of his body, out of the arena, just floating in space. But as the game went on, yeah, no, this was uh, this is a uh, this is what happens when you you prep for games one and two at the same time. Bledsoe had a pretty solid game two. Did not have a good game one. I'm retracting that statement. That was a mistake. Uh, he's one for five, the same as Brooke Lopez, and slightly better than Sterling Brown, who was one for seven in this game. But no, not a not a good Bledsoe game. Uh, what were your guys' second quarter thoughts, takeaways from this one, where the Bucks did at one point take the lead, make it a close game, uh, but ultimately do go into halftime down a little bit? I struggle to remember much of any of this, having watched it like an hour and a half ago, maybe, uh, because I was just taken out of it by Miritich. Like, this yeah, is the start of jarring. Miritich's last stand. And, like, Miritich feels like something that happened, like, 15 years ago um, and that we all just wish hadn't happened. That we, It's very difficult, this particular one, knowing what's to come and just knowing the sheer nothingness uh, that... <sighs> He offers going forward. And it's hey, like just he made something. it. He just... made it a twenty-two point uh, loss instead of a thirty. <laughs> yeah, I I wonder though. Is this? I I I wonder about the impact. And this is some real like galaxy brains in retrospect stuff. You can only do a year later. I wonder if him having a good game in this game ultimately doesn't play to the book's advantage. I don't mean in the series, obviously, because they cruise beyond this, but I mean overall, because you end up making lineup changes and they end up playing small a lot more and you've got Miritich at the tree and it's kind of, you know, no one likes it, but it's working, so let's just not say anything and keep going with it. Until the point where he just, like starts to get shown up really badly defensively and I kind of feel like that can't but hurt your confidence overall and probably eventually seep into how you feel when you're shooting like it's it's probably a reach but I am reaching I there's something about seeing him come out and being like oh he's actually kind of doing something good 
oh, that's that's interesting, that's strange. But also knowing what comes from there, I don't know if that was the best direction for the books to kind of lean into. But then again, it's like you look at it and it's a very different story. I mean, the roster, the differences between last year's roster and this year's even. Um, I guess most notably at this point, not having Dante, you know, you think mm-hmm. of how your lineup options would have kind of evolved to the Dante. But that is for me, like Miritich being good is something that kind of took me out of large spells of this game because we all know what happens next. So are you saying that if he had like a bad game even earlier, like he was, he didn't have this good game, sorry, he would have gotten like benched and taken out of the lineup earlier? I, I don't think so, but I think the leash he was ultimately on would have been a little bit shorter down the road. And they maybe would have had to explore some different options. Now, I don't know because the flip side of this coin is also, would that have led them to rushing Malcolm Brogdon back sooner? And would that have been even worse for what comes ahead? Look, we we really, we can't answer that. But I, I do think, like when they couldn't make any shots in the conference finals, we all know, you know, really would have been helpful to have like just, an average version of Nikola Mirotic, just career average version of that guy, the books could have got to the finals if they had that. And I think by the point that they needed it, he had been played out of position and like just some of those possessions and some of those games that you, both of you will be reliving and you'll be able to speak to very specifically over the episodes ahead. There are moments that are, incredibly ugly for him defensively where you're just like okay it's fine you know they're getting past the Celtics and you know they're winning well but I just don't know how that served Nikola Mirotic as an individual for the point of then next round of being like oh it's go time we need you to do things against a good team it was a weird fit overall it was a move that I think we all understood and felt was worthwhile at the time but it's even when you see him have a good game and trying to kind of pigeonhole him and the ways that it could work like brooke i mean this is kind of the story of brooke's time with the books the the more time goes on you you mentioned he shot one of five which is correct he was a plus two though you know oh yeah so yeah, no I, th- so, I, I thought that was really interesting from this game and but that's problematic for Miritich because mm-hmm. you're then having to play small or you're relying on him just when Giannis is off the floor like that's where the fit of that and then when you're playing him at the tree sure it can work it can work from time to time but boy can it get ugly too and we know it ultimately did yeah i yeah, think i think i think a point with that is wrong. you didn't really have a lot of other options like again we've been saying how how much better this year's team is like you don't have a marvin williams you can throw in you don't have a Robin Lopez to put in instead of Brooke Lopez. You, it's just you can't do that. You have to put Miritich in because uh, otherwise it's Ursan. Well, yeah, the I other mean, player. I mean, because even Ursan again, you're going to you're going to some of the variations of the jumbo lineups that Bud was partial the to. The jumbo we, lineups we all had a lot of fun with. <laughs> Love them, but not quite in the configuration that they were necessarily coming about in the playoffs. And I, I think actually the best option, and this did play out, and he did not have a good game one, but I think it's probably worth mentioning because maybe we'll end up overlooking him otherwise. 
is Pat Connaughton because Pat Connaughton comes in and he's at least active and he does a lot and on this occasion that hurts the books but he kind of sets a template for something that becomes crucial going forward like we talked about the lack of movement off the ball like Connaughton's a great cutter and a relentless cutter maybe more importantly he will always look to kind of dive to the basket give Giannis passing options he will keep his defenders on his to- on their toes and on this occasion it didn't happen for him he was two of ten from the field but i was kind of the minutes where he was in the game i was kind of drawn to him because compared to a lot of the books out there he was just he was really active and looking to make things happen now if that's what you you've got and Giannis is not his best you know, it's not ideal but i i do think in what was a bad game for him he also kind of sows some of the seeds for the really positive series overall that that he has against the celtics I think what's wild about watching this is you don't realize how much better the Bucks have gotten, not just in, I mean, there's things that, that we talk about a lot, especially in this pod, like how much better they play. You know, they have more counters to when teams will do what teams did to Giannis, you know, when they pack the paint or whatever. But just roster-wise, I mean, you guys are talking about the, the lack of options, really. And I think with Nico, I think especially against athletic teams, there's one position he can play, right? Like it's the four. Like at three, he's not, he's not fast enough. At, he's not a defensive five. He can't do nearly the thing. He's not even close. Imagine what Al Horford this. would have done to him, like if the books went, "Oh, we're just also gonna put that. him at the five. No, like, <laughs> also God. that, yeah, like that. That's that's awful as well. And you know, against the Celtics team, there is not. There's not even really a four. I mean, that's the Celtics team's DNA is like Al Horford. Sometimes they'll play with two bigs. Sometimes, but otherwise, they're just like Kyrie, a bunch of wings, and Al Horford. So there's like nobody you can. I mean, even bad Gordon Hayward is like gonna abuse Nikola Mirotic and did abuse Nikola Mirotic so it's that's kind of like he's very Ersan-esque in that and what's like I really only see one place to put him and some teams no places uh, that's why like Rohan you pointed out Marvin Williams but even like Wes Matthews can guard bigger mm-hmm. guys capably or at least he gives you another guy so you can move Chris and Giannis up um, Dante for sure is one of those guys you look at this it's roster the smaller it's the smaller options like and yeah. I think that's particularly what that stands out when you look at this rather than it being the Marvin Williams which is good and that's a, that's a different option in its own right it's the fact that you're trying to kind of you know it's kind of square pegs around holes kind of thing you're, you're trying to fill out you've got good players but I don't necessarily know if you've got the right mix that the combinations were going to be seamless and that ultimately did play out for them yeah, I mean, you you talked about Pat. Pat was third in minutes played in this series. Like, he didn't start a single game, but total minutes, he was third. Like, there were not a ton of options. I mean, Chris and Giannis are one and two. Then Pat, Eric Bledsoe, which, eh, sometimes. Uh, Nico is five, which, uh, Brooke Lopez is sixth, because sometimes there were some matchups that were questionable. Then George Hill, who obviously is very, very good in his minutes, but you don't want him to be one of your top guys. Then it's Ursan and Sterling. Malcolm only plays one game, and then you get the garbage time crew of, like, Tony Snell and Tim Frazier and DJ Wilson. Like, not a lot of great options there. The, the, this team was not, not super deep. Um, speaking of great options, with currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB on, you might think there's nothing to bet on, but you would be wrong. Our exclusive partner, betonline.ag, still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on. Or you can let them bring Vegas right to you, with their online casino and blackjack. This is all open 24 hours a day, and it's all completely online, including their $750,000 poker series. And if you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the weather. 
Visit their website and join today to receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Just use promo code BLUEWIRE. BetOnline.ag, your online wagering experts. Okay, we're past halftime. Uh, we've got to go to the third quarter now, which is, you know, the Bucks this past regular season, which may be over, maybe not. We don't really know. Anyway, they've been known for, like, really good third quarters. I think Coach Mike Budenholzer's done a great job of, of scheming for third quarters, making adjustments, everything else. That um, did not happen in in this game. Uh, I think I hit my notes the third quarter from hell. This is the only quarter where Boston scores more than 26 points. Like I said, the Bucks' offense, uh, defense, doesn't really collapse in any of the other three quarters. I think they gave up 26, 26, and 24 in the first, second, and fourth quarter. This quarter, a little bit different. The Celtics shoot 71% from deep and 65% from the field, which is definitely not ideal. Um, the pick and pops from Horford hurt. Horford's defense is very good. Maybe one of Horford's best quarters, I think, and it's probably his playoff career. What were your guys' third quarter takes from this game? They're probably not going to be super fun to go over. Well, I mean, I mentioned at the top of the pod that it was sort of the fears of this series were sort of realized, and that was because like the big matchup problem coming in was Al Horford against Brook Lopez. Uh, like, oh, is Brook going to get played off the floor because of the pick-and-pop game and the drop scheme that Milwaukee was exclusively running? And that, that came to light. Like, Al Horford was pick-and-popping Brook Lopez off the floor, and then when Brook Lopez got off the floor, he was cooking Miritich and Ilyasova. Uh, so, like, Boston exclusively, like, almost exclusively, went to that in this quarter, and that led to Al Horford going four for six from the field, including two for two from deep. Like, if, if they're going to go to that specific exploit that they can use, they that's how they won the quarter, because they, they found something that can, they can exploit. And they just went at it relentlessly. Yeah, I think the book scheme is obviously uh, more vulnerable to that particular approach. But like, this is should be like example A of what just how deadly the Kyrie Irving Al Horford pick and roll was and could have been. You know, in terms of pairing those two guys, it was a, a real showcase of. I mean, what Horford does best has done for a long time. I mean, I don't really... I don't have an issue with the books overall sticking to so many of their key defensive principles. And I think even as the playoffs went along, at times when they tried to pivot, it didn't necessarily work. And there, there's a tough balancing act there. But I think Horford particularly, and I know in listening back to the podcast, the episode of Win and Six that we did, Ron, at the time, this was one of the key things we kind of focused on, which is just the, like, the know your personnel element of this. You know, this is fine. You can do this for player X, player Y, but not Al Horford because the books were giving Al Horford his shots at his favorite spots. You know, you you actually may have been better putting pressure on Al Horford and making him drive to the rim, you know, particularly when Brooke is out there. So there's an element of that that is... A little bit uncomfortable. I think part of that is again, this is it's strange considering what Horford has looked like this year. But part of this is you've got to tip your hat. This was like an all-star duo playing really, really well and looking like perfect complements for each other together. But that is that is the thing from this quarter. I believe you might be able to confirm if you these kind of things noted, Ty. But I also believe this is the quarter where Horford. I mean, Block would not quite 
sell oh, what yeah. he does to Giannis. I, I actually think in watching that, I don't think I've ever seen Giannis be blocked quite as like emphatically and forcefully as that in his entire career. It was a nasty block, a statement block that really kind of speaks to just how dominant Horford was in this game. Well, it was two in a row, right? Like, he kind of, mm-hmm. he, like, stuffs him, and Giannis gets the ball back, and Giannis goes back up, and then Horford absolutely demolishes it. I think it's, that's the play. It's like a man throwing a child to the floor in the end. Like, yeah. it's, you just don't see anyone do that to Giannis. It's very, very jarring to see. The only ta- the this only was... thing I can think of that comes close is that Anthony Tolliver block last season. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a deep you cut. guys you guys know what i'm talking about right i do it just sounds so funny to think yeah, about it of all the players i mean um <laughs> I, I still think i go with the horford one no I yeah think. obviously but it's just like that's the only one that sort of comes close because that al horford block was it was insane you you're already dealing with a player in Giannis whose confidence was rattled in this game he had no idea what he was doing and then you throw that in there you just, you, I don't understand how that doesn't take a mental toll on him. It, yeah, it might it have pro- been the dagger, did. honestly. Yeah. Like, yeah, and, and even thinking about that, it. too, trying to think of other players, like Jared Allen has got Giannis good over time, but it's, when, when someone gets Giannis with blocks, it tends to be like a combination of someone who's really good at timing their blocks and also is using their length. Mm-hmm. This, you have both of those elements with Horford, but there's also just an extra layer of aggression that I just, that's the thing that I can't quite pinpoint someone just being able to like put him on the floor like that, because that's what we're used to Giannis doing to everyone else. So I think for with the way this game was unfolding, uh, even like we're talking about the impact it has for, for Giannis, for the Celtics, like talk about yeah. just a boost to kind of see you through that game. You, you can't have anything that's going to energize you more than that away in the books arena and their best players put on the floor like that and Al Horford's having like one of the games of his career. That's a pretty big boost that, uh, you know, is probably in hindsight difficult to overcome regardless of some of the things the books could have done better themselves. And I think this was one of like the biggest tunnel vision examples of the game. Cause when you do run it back, Horford's there, Horford does all the work. But there are three Celtics right under the rim, and there's no box around. And there's not, not enough movement, like you said before, Adam, uh, astutely. But again, like, after you get blocked the first time, you get the ball back. I mean, you have so many good shooters just posted up at the arc and, and instead give Horford one of the, one of the got to be one of the most emphatic Horford blocks ever. Speaking of one of Al Horford's best games, I do have some trivia ready for you, Adam, a, a renowned Al Horford fan. He's a personal friend, I like to think of him. But go on. That too. How Do you know how many times Al Horford... He scored 20 exactly in this game. Do you know how many times in his career Al Horford has scored 20 points in the playoffs? Hmm. Uh, was, see, th- this is one of these slightly scenarios... higher he, than I thought? Okay, I thought the question was leading me and I was going to give something and you were like, oh, he's never done it. I'm like, what? No, 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 um, no, no, no. Certainly not that. <laughs> I don't know, this is a tough one, because his his peck injuries came at the kind of times where the Hawks were really good, or getting better, and he missed some good playoffs. I'm gonna go that he's done this 15 times? 20 times? 20 times. Dang. The fun part of the trivia is part two. Do you know how many of those 20 came against the Milwaukee Bucks? Oh my god. Oh... Six? 
Seven. Pretty close. Ooh. Pretty good guesses. Seven of 20. So Al Horford percentage of playoff game 20-point performances against the Bucks actually higher than Nikola Mirotic's playoff three-point percentage with the Milwaukee Bucks. Awesome. Al Horford, 35%. <laughs> Uh, two in this series, two of his seven total, twenty of two of twenty total, two of seven against the Bucks. Nico Miritic shoots twenty eight point nine percent in this postseason from three. So that's just some fun Al Horford stuff. When Al Horford has gone off in the playoffs, not more often than not, but I think more often than against any other team, the Bucks have been the uh, the ones on the other end of it. That just made me just so upset. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> But that's he's a player who, for that reason, I think books fans long coveted because you know there was some logic too. If we were to go back a few years and center issues around, you're trying to think who'd you pair with Giannis. You know, kind of a not washed up version of Al Horford alongside Giannis would be really, really good and really, really fun. But he he was also a player dating back to his time at the Hawks, who you know uh, has done more than his fair share of damage to the books over the years. Can you imagine no. instead of Robin Lopez this season, it was Al Horford? Oh, oh, that would be fun. I don't. That's a lot of centers, but that would still be a lot of fun. Um, I, I, I think the best version of the books, like hypothetical. I mean, if you're going back, if if say they could have got Horford instead of Brooke Lopez at that time, I think a lot of people would probably be surprised. Say last year, just how much. Of what Brooke does, Horford would have been able to do, and how much more beyond that. Like he's a real, he's a really fascinating player in terms of I think how he'd fit alongside Giannis. Now, obviously, at the we're at a point in his career where all this is kind of a moot point, but particularly that, and then obviously Bud's relationship with him too. And that is that's an interesting wrinkle for me in this game. Like for all the talk about Bud and adjustments over the years, and I am. Uh, very much a devoted a devout and devoted bud <laughs> fan and people will know this and i i don't think i go out of my way to defend him but I, I do have more faith in him than probably some other people even in the tougher moments because i've been watching his teams like since he's a head coach i've been watching them constantly through that time and the fact when we're talking about like the shots that horford was allowed to take the fact that Bud, of all people, was allowing him to take that is is quite something, and is interesting. I didn't even think maybe about the, that. Maybe that is the one thing because, like, Bud knows exactly the spots they're giving up and how they are Horford spots. Like, just at the free throw line, uh, kind of right baseline. These are his favorite spots. He is automatic. Like, they're like layups. Unlike any other big, maybe of the last kind of ten, fifteen years, and the books let him have those shots over and over again this game. Which, I don't know, it might be something even as both of you continue to watch through the series to keep an eye on. Just how that progresses in terms of the games ahead. I know the Bucks didn't completely pivot away, uh, but I've got to think they gave a little bit more attention to that. Because Bud knew that well, and then they got burned by it anyway. Yeah, one thing I didn't really understand about this game particularly, compared to, like let's say, this season, was how deep they dropped. Because they were, like, if you had a pick and roll at the top of the arc, like, Brooke was dropping, like, halfway into the paint. And so was, like, Giannis on, like, every pick and roll. It was it was insane. Like, this season, they're, they're dropping a little higher. I just did not understand how that, how they thought that would work against this team. I wonder was part of that hoping the wrong guys will start taking 
more than their fair share of shots, if you get me. Like, that Marcus Morris will see that, and he'll be the one taking all the shots. Only. Yeah, that's fair. There, like, was, there was one possession I remember where uh, Giannis, like, sort of dropped near the rim as Marcus Morris was spotting up for a three, and Giannis didn't even come out to contest because he was at the rim. And he, Marcus Morris made the three because he was just he was wide open because of this, mm-hmm. just how far they were dropping. Yeah, I think I think for sure there were some slight adjustments made from this game, um, and and then this year, like we've said, in so many ways, the Bucks have been so much better this year. It's hard to, I mean, it's good to keep in mind that this was, you know, year one of the Bud Bucks. I mean, there were a lot of things still being worked on, still being ironed out. I mean, there were so many new additions and wrinkles. I mean, this team was actually doing coherent stuff uh, based on what their coaches were saying for the first time in a very long time. So I think that that played into a lot of this as well. Um, Ty, Tim t- Frazier got three minutes in this game. Yeah, headband sighting. Headband means the game's over one way or the other. That's one thing like, I've learned from this. When you see that headband, <laughs> one team or another has already won. But just imagine this year, like, and look, hopefully we'll, we'll get to see them finish out and we get to see what this year's book looked like in the playoffs. But they're... There isn't a Tim Frazier to come in and get minutes. You know, there isn't. I, I don't. I actually, he's a he's a fine, kind of capable, solid, veteran journeyman role player. I've, I don't know if I could put any more words together there. <laughs> um, but like the books are so far past that in terms of their depth, the quality of their bench this year. It would have to be Thanasis, right? Yeah, it probably he is probably the the guy. I mean, DJ's would be right up there with him for me. Uh, yeah. but I don't know, maybe there's even settings where just that makes more sense. The fact that he was, even with, I know Brogdon was injured, but he was active and he got any minutes regardless of the scenario, like, that speaks to the difference between the book scene this year and the book scene last year alone. Yeah, yeah. It's, no, it it's, I, I think, like, all, from 1 to 17, the Bucks all got a little bit better. Every single spot, I think, is, is better than it was last year. Um, shout out to Frank Mason and Cam Reynolds, who I think both probably would have played real minutes in this game where they on the box and playoff eligible. Cam Reynolds, really? Cam Reynolds, uh, can Cam Reynolds play real minutes ever, Ty, for the books? Yeah. This is the question. Oh, I think so. No, I don't mean can as in, like, you know, is he capable? I mean... Oh, like, no, I'm saying, like, if you dropped them on this team somehow and they were, like, eligible and active, like, I think they would have gotten to play. Like, this team, this, like, instead of Tim Frazier, is what I'm saying. Yeah, Sorry, I, Tim Frazier. I guess maybe. I, I mean, I just, I'm just i still puzzled by Cam Reynolds' failure to log even a single second with the books. I just don't know why they'd even do that to anyone. But that is a conversation for another day. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, third quarter comes to an end soon. I mean, Kyrie's making more ridiculous shots. Pat C makes a big three. One of his two made shots, as you mentioned, Adam, brings the Bucks within 10. But Boston just rolling from this point. And that's kind of the story of the fourth quarter, too. Uh, starts out with a Giannis 3, which was nice. Boston only wins by 5, 24-19. This quarter, they win the game a lot overall, or by a lot overall. Um, Pat C dribbling is just something that usually brings me, troubles me. It did in this game. He gets picked off by Jalen at one point. But luckily, Jalen Brown throws it right to Giannis, who slams it. Giannis hits some more threes, like you said, really more desperation I've stuff. never seen Giannis pad his stats, but that's sort of what happened in the fourth. In the fourth. Yeah. This this fourth quarter, I, I think don't know was if he was almost trying to junk. necessarily pad his stats, but that's what it felt like. Because yeah, if it like wasn't for the, like threes, it was over. Yeah, like he had nine of his twenty-two points in the fourth quarter, and it was Ooh. essentially all garbage time. 
Yeah. No, I would agree with that. I don't, I don't know. Like that's, it was pretty junk. I mean, as, as you already mentioned, we got a Tim Frazier sighting. Um, did anything else in the fourth quarter jump out to you guys? I mean, we're on a podcast, so I probably shouldn't just say no, but... <laughs> Sterling no? gets hurt. That's one thing. I'd, I'd forgotten yeah, that. I guess that. Sterling changes. gets banged up. Yeah, back spasms, right? Yeah, yeah like, yeah. I mean, that's ultimately what leads to what I was talking about earlier, that, oh, Miritich had some mm-hmm. good moments. He made some shots. Sterling Although, goes down. Okay. Go on. One of the worst bits of defense I've ever seen in my entire life. The Celtics run a Kyrie Irving, Jalen Brown pick and roll, which has to have happened like, or it ended up being a pick and pop, which had to have happened like, I don't know, 10 times total. That does not feel like something they went to a lot. But it's for somehow Miritich ends up on Jalen Brown, which is already a disaster. They try to like trap Kyrie Irving. I think it was like Bledsoe or somebody was guarding Kyrie. That, that part's not that important. They, they do like, Nico does like the worst trap I've ever seen, which is like, he just kind of backs up in front of him, and, and everybody ignores Jalen Brown, and it's just the easiest three-pointer of all time. And you just watch that and go, yeah, that's about – anytime Nico was involved on defense, that's that's about how it ended up looking. That's for sure. Nico Miritich plays defense like he played for Jason Kidd. <laughs> it's just kind of shuffle around a bit. Yeah, just – The Jabari special? Yeah, uh, move around, have active hands, see, like, make it seem like you're actually doing something when you – Be tall. Yeah, be, be tall. tall is an important part. Yeah. He's he's just a really weird body type for an NBA defender. Like, I can't – like, he's kind of – he's tall and he's lanky and you'd think he's maybe be a little bit quicker and a little – like, you know what I mean? He's not Ursan where you're like, yeah, Ursan doesn't have foot speed because, like, looks at Ursan. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not like that and yet, like, he's not – he just doesn't have anything defensively. Like, he's a good defensive rebounder because he's long. I mean, that was his only real value defensively is, okay, you put him in, if someone else boxes out, he'll secure the ball, which it's a low bar. He was particularly good at it. But, I mean, it's a really, really tough one. And, I mean, that's ultimately, I mean, go get that money in Barcelona and live where you want to live because I think as he got older, you know, the NBA money would have dried up pretty quick because... He's incredibly streaky, and I, there is just no answer to that defense that would have only got worse in time. It's just, he is, I can't think of a, another player even around the NBA like him that I'd say, like, he's limited in that way defensively for that reason. He just, he's kind of a weird mix of, okay, what is his body shape, what is his play style, and then what are the weaknesses? It just doesn't seem like it should add up, and it all kind of comes together to be, oh, he just, there's not really anything good he does defensively. Maybe Gallo. Is Gallo probably a little bit better? He's oh, he's, he's a well, lot he's just better. a better player yeah. too. So no, like defensively, defensively, oh, okay. obviously, he's much I mean, much better offensively. But that does factor into it because you know if Nico was better offensively, if he was Gallo offensively, you'd say okay, well, he has no defense, but at least we can turn to this. Where yeah, like uh, that's the tricky part of it. Like I. This is the kind of thing that I do find interesting with a player like that. And I've found out that all these guys are very self-aware and they're kind of in kind of film sessions and with their own kind of assistants that work with them or personal trainers, this comes up. But, you know, this is an area where I do respect, like, Ursan's charge-taking and the fact that at some point he went, oh, I need to become a positional defender to have, like, a career at this level. I've Mm got to really master that. And it's... It's something that 
everyone can kind of do is be like, you know, let's just try to learn the game. Let's try to read the game and get myself in the right spot. So I'm not going to be worked over on my foot speed quite as often. And with someone like Miritich, I kind of go, just what if he had done that? If he had, say, Ursan's charge-taking ability? He's a completely different player because you can live with some of the ups and downs of his offense much more. Where instead you've just kind of got yikes when the shot's not going. Yeah, that's a good point. I I don't know how you go through film sessions and just watch yourself get cooked possession after possession <laughs> after possession and decide, I'm not going to change anything. Well, Because I, I, I don't think, really I don't think Nikola Mirotic has ever made a defensive stop in his entire life. <laughs> but Classic. I... <laughs> I guess I, think that's, I guess that's, that's an like awareness thing too, though. Maybe and yeah. maybe I'm unfair. That's just some guys have that and some guys don't. Like these are the kind of conversations we all had a lot more when Jabari was on the team. We were trying to figure out what Jabari oh would be, God. and it, it, it maybe it does just come down to like not reading the game in the same way. In Jabari's case, that was always tougher because you're like he clearly can read the game offensively. So then maybe it's just doesn't really care. What the you don't get paid to hands. play defense. Yeah, I was about to get to that. So. <laughs> I haven't heard Miritich say something like that publicly, but maybe in private. That's one of his own favorite lines, too. Yeah. What I'm gathering uh, from this is that Nikola Miritich is approaching Grievous Vasquez level in Buck's lore, oh if not God. already past it. I would say past it, because I think uh, like Grievous Vasquez would have been like at least a decent player. He just got hurt. Yeah, at I least like, he, wasn't an, he wasn't an active negative because he didn't play. I, I can't yeah. believe I'm in this position where I'm going to have to talk about Grievous Vasquez again. Yeah, I, I can't believe you did that to us, Rohan. We're already, we're already Only Grievous Vasquez and I own Grievous Vasquez Milwaukee Bucks jersey. Oh my god. Grievous uh, <laughs> Vasquez, very good player, who, you know, could have helped the Bucks a lot at that time. Uh, turns out was pretty catastrophically injured. Yeah, not sure what yeah. was disclosed or not disclosed. And yeah, the Bucks should not have paid all of that kind of price for him. With Norm Powell that. and OG. Uh, let's not let's not let's, do the players yeah, who weren't drafted yet. This I've is you're gonna upset me now. Enough. Yeah, Don't, you know the books. You're giving the books too much credit to say they would have picked the good players with the picks. You never do that. That's fair. Yeah, you know? pre pre John Horst, that would have been like long guys who existed. That was the the <laughs> mo of picks at that point. I think the Miritich thing though. Just going back to that quickly. You know that's the kind of the difference between regular season and playoff basketball though. Like. How many teams over the 82 game regular season are like sitting there like how do we you know how can we take advantage of Nikola Mirotic? Like it doesn't I don't I don't know if there's that much specific game planning like you can be a not liability for the regular season most of the time just because I don't know it doesn't come up and then in the playoffs everything is so magnified there's there's so much prep for each series each individual game that everything just looks so much bigger and yeah that was uh it was uh, yeah Nikola Mirotic's not good at a lot of things besides shooting. And like you said, was defensively. He, was he good at shooting? Not here. Not for the books. Nope. And that's, no. That's the killer. Hey, he, he always has the second quarter of a 22-point loss. That's true. That is true. This was one of his few uh, I can't believe that. Offense. I feel I'm to blame, but that this has turned into a kind of, you know, a pile on Mirotic. Considering, oh, no. some is, of the games, considering some of the games you're going to do down the line, though, to be piling on him after this game, uh, it doesn't bode well. At least that, we're, that we're, defensive we're getting it out of the start. way. Oh, no, we'll get back to it. But <laughs> anyway, that's that's this game. Let's do our series vibe quickly here in Randolph. We went way over time, which is simply to be expected uh, of an I'm Adam here. McGee joint. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Long-form podcaster, that's me. <laughs> 
it, it was bad. Uh, things felt bad. I mean, like you guys said, the series wasn't over, but I do I do remember, like, the thought for me was, like, it's not over. It, this certainly was not ideal. It's very troubling. This could turn bad quickly. My whole thing was game two. You cannot lose both of the first two home games. That feels completely impossible. It's not, but it feels completely impossible to come back from. Where were you guys at on the series after after this game in the moment? And then, re- I mean, of course, rewatching. You know what happens. But in retrospect, what do you think? Well, I answer for Rowan, so, he's, so he can only be honest. <laughs> oh, can. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, no, to be fair, your, your belief in the books wasn't true. I don't think you were picking them to come back as, you know, convincingly as they did, which is fair. That's a rational approach. I didn't take that. I was very much irrational. It worked out. I thought they'd win in five. It it just, like, I think even rewatching it, considering all of the good books basketball we've watched over the past 18 months, it does just feel like, you know, this is, like, worst case scenario. This is as bad as it gets. And I think that was part of it for me at the time was, it's not going to happen like this again. You know, it's not, it's certainly not going to happen like this three more times against the same team in that series. I love that you had to add in that series. Oh, well, look, that's the reality of it. But I I don't even... That's a conversation for a different day, and you guys will have that. But I I don't think it's the same thing. I don't think the books played this bad at that time. I think there are other factors in it. And the main factor being, you know, they were playing the team that ultimately went on to win a championship and the best player in all the playoffs they came up against. And, you know, those things certainly make life more difficult. But... I think for for this itself, it's certainly not a fun thing to go back and watch. I hope no one else listening has done that. Um, don't I wouldn't wish it on anyone. I certainly, if someone invites you on a podcast under the premise of you should watch game one of Book Celtics again, you know maybe don't do it. That's all I'll say. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, you know that's fair. But you know we got a great conversation out of it. Uh, we did. Yes, but. For me, overall, as a series, like you said, I wasn't sort of feeling like it was going to be as convincing. I guess I guess I'm remembering now because it's been proven to me that I'm a liar. Uh, but I, I, I wasn't going full Paul Pierce and saying it's over. Uh, but it was just, I wasn't as confident. Like, I thought that I was sort of feeding into the feeling like this team, like the Celtics team, was a perfect counter to the Bucks, And, like, game one proved that. So I was... I wasn't I wasn't as confident. Uh, one other thing I wanted to say about this series overall, Marv Albert uh, not being able to tell the difference between Brook Lopez and Nikola Mirotic was amazing, like the entire series. Did he get Ursan in there too or not? He might have. I just I just remember <laughs> Brook and Mirotic. He he could not Does tell. Does he just the see shapes and sizes? Is that how that works? <laughs> yep. Colors yes. clearly colors as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, I I, I think. One interesting element for to kind of wrap up on this is I think when you watch back on this, even though you know what happens, I can I could understand the more easily now panic about this game than I would have been able to then, because we know what happens. I think this is still relatively a point where, you know, it's Bud's first season. They've won sixty games. Everything has gone right from this point. This is it. This is like this is the only loss. Like. This is the only loss up until this point. It'll be their only loss for a while. There's no reason to completely panic about it. Where I think part of it is now, or if you rewatch, you're trying to you're trying to pick out things of that kind of foreshadow what's to come, 
or that are tied into the concerns that people would still bring up, which I think in this series it, it doesn't, and in this game it just doesn't really apply. I I think not enough can be said that you know Celtics really good. Like this was a really good Celtics performance, and Giannis in particular was just terrible for the Bucks, and I that think, kind of sinks the ship. I think it's worth noting on on like the kind of understanding the panic part of it, and this is something I kind of wasn't thinking of until right now. This was the Bud Bucks' first game against a real playoff opponent. I mean, sorry, sorry, Detroit Pistons, uh, with like one point six games of Blake Griffin. It was the A seed. I mean, it was one eight. Everybody knew what was going to happen there. Even the people, and there were and are plenty of them who are Bucks detractors who said the Bucks are frauds, whatever, whatever, regular season champs, whatever. You know, and everybody knew what was going to happen that series. That was the foregone conclusion, and it was a sweep, so everyone was right. This series was like, like you had mentioned earlier, I think, Adam, this was a very good Celtics team with star power, I think two All-Stars, and Corford, this was probably what's going to be his last All-Star nod. And they were good, and the way that this happened, the fact that it was game one that they won so convincingly, there was certainly, you know, that doubt that I think every Bucks fan has in the back of their mind from watching the Bucks for the last 20 years before this, minus like three good years. It's like, oh no. We're, it was all it was all fake. It was fool's gold, etc. They're not really this good, whatever. And I'm not saying I thought all those things for sure, but those kind of thoughts you can see how people got there. You can certainly see how people got there. I think it's it might be a little harsh. I think it's definitely a little harsh. Uh, and of course, reactionary to do that based on 48 minutes and really just one really bad quarter. But you can see where it comes from for sure, based on rolling over a bad Pistons team a playoff team, but a, not a good team. And then right away when you see the real competition, this happens. It's it's just really bad timing, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's also just, you know, people are always looking for reason to panic. Yeah, oh, for sure. Like, give people a reason to be mad or angry or panic or to be contrarian, particularly in social media, and, you know, they will take it. There is a certain subsection who are always waiting for that, who, I guess, live their lives that way, waiting for things to go wrong. Books fans maybe particularly attuned to that kind of mindset uh, just based on the years of what they'd seen so something like that plays into it but yeah look it's this game in the bigger picture not a lot of fun but no big deal and you know what maybe a more important game going forward like they didn't have to they didn't have to go through it in this way in the next series but let's say this season resumes and we get a playoffs and the Bucks in an important series lose game one at home. They've been there, they've done that, and they've come back with the best possible response. You know, teams do go through some things. This is one the Bucks went through and then kind of came back and passed with flying colors. So not a big deal, but maybe a game that even as we zoom further out, that if we were doing this 12 months down the line, 24 months down the line, we could actually look back and say, well, no, they learned something about themselves that day and the way they lost was actually important for some of the things that came down the line. The fact that we only have one other series and there's so many other things, that kind of takes away from it. But maybe a series that in time, this Boston series and this game and the response to it becomes a little bit more interesting too. Yeah, no, for sure. That's a great point. Uh, do we do we have any other any other thoughts on this on this game? I'm glad you brought up Paul Pierce, just to remind everyone that, I mean, I think really what changed the momentum of the series was probably Paul Pierce saying it's over. I think that was more than any adjustment the Bucks could have made. That was probably the number one thing that, that swung this. No, that's that's all I've got, though. I think, uh, I think I'm taked out for game one. 
Okay, Adam. Oh, I'm done. I was I was done a long time ago. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, in that case, we'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Eurostep. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating and subscribe on your uh, podcast platform of choice, and tell your family and friends about the show. Uh, make sure you check out Adam. Everything that Adam does, the Win and Six podcast, everything over at Behind the Bucks. Uh, the caption on Celluloid podcast, and talking about all things film. And uh, anything else you wanna? Anything else you wanna plug, Adam? No, you covered it all really well. Uh, read, read my work and the rest of the team at Behind the Book Pass. Of course, Ty and Rowan are uh, alumni of the site at this point. And yeah, Win and Six podcast. You can find myself and Jordan Tresky talking books. Captured in Celluloid, myself and Andrew Snyder talking movies. And at this current weird point in time, uh, if you like my podcast, you like my articles, listen to them, click on them. The same applies to if you're a big fan of the Eurostep. Keep listening. Uh, we all more than ever appreciate kind of the interest shown in our work and it makes a, makes a big difference at a pretty uncertain time. I agree 100%. Uh, make sure you check out all of the other podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. They're all great. They're all pushing out great content during this during this rough time. But I guess to wrap up, please stay safe, everyone, and we will talk to you next time. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.